This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. The people of France are rioting in great numbers after police fatally shot a 17-year-old of Algerian and Moroccan descent. Meanwhile in Germany, the country's main far-right party has just won control of a major county administration. This episode also looks at China's role in the American fentanyl crisis, Israel's prime minister capitulating to leftists, American voting machines that are vulnerable to hacking, and the mutiny of Russia's Wagner Group and its ramifications in Russia and beyond. All this and more coming up on Trumpet Hour. Hello and welcome to Trumpet Hour and our weekly review of all the important news. I'm Jeremiah Jacques and we have a situation today with our panelists that I think we've not had since Trumpet Hour's earliest years. And that is that instead of being connected across the oceans with Skype and Zoom and all that, instead of that we have all four of the panelists together with me here in Edmond, Oklahoma, all within the same four walls. And we do have quite a lot of big news to discuss. So. With me here in the studio is Andrew Miller. Hello. And Mr. Richard Palmer. Good morning. And Rufaro Manyepa. Hello. And Josue Michels. Nice to be here. And we will begin with a look at Europe, which Mr. Richard Palmer focuses on. What can you tell us about the developments on the continent this week? Well, Germany has announced they're permanently stationing 4,000 troops in Lithuania. That's something Lithuania has been asking for for quite a while, but... Uh, they haven't quite, you know, Germany will rotate troops in there. They haven't quite taken that step of permanently stationing them. I think that's a pretty big step in terms of Germany stepping up and saying, we are the European power that is going to take responsibility for defending Europe against Russia. Lithuania, of course, has a border with Russia, with the enclave of, uh, of Kaliningrad there. Uh, and America has praised this response. I think America is very eager for, you know, at the moment, it's a lot of American troops that are permanently stationed in European countries. They are very eager to see Germany take that role. And so they were pretty enthusiastic about this decision. Uh, another story I'll just touch on briefly. We had the second round of some Greek elections take place over last weekend. This was won pretty comfortably uh, by the right wing party, which... It's a pretty big shift for Greece, given that you had the radically left Syriza party uh, just fairly recently. They they took over the country. And there's a lot of commentators seeing this as, as a sign of the mood of all of Europe, that we're seeing Europe shift in a much more right-wing direction. Two or three years ago, people were saying, you know, the left is ascendant in Europe. Now I'm seeing news stories t talking about how basically uh, Europe is going to become a much more a kind of almost a bastion of of not even right-wing politics but even further to the right than than the kind of the even the center right that we see in britain and america uh and i think we'll touch on that a little bit more in the main story too yeah so some some significant stories there and there's uh still another development that you view as being even more significant yeah i think there's a couple of I mean, it's almost like two mirror images that i want to talk about for the for the main story the most dramatic uh, comes from France over the last few days, where the best way to understand what's happening in France is they're, go they're having their own Black Lives Matter riots. Uh, so this was earlier in the week, I think it was Tuesday, uh, maybe Monday, you had French police, there, there was a car stop, 
uh, it was a rental car being driven by um, a black migrant from North Africa, from Algeria, uh, Muslim. And uh, he pulls over. You can the, the video kind of starts halfway through the, the stop. You can hear the French traffic officials saying, I'm going to put a bullet in your head. The guy tries to drive off and you know, pow, he's executed, bullet in the head. Uh, and that footage, and it's a pretty short clip, kind of went viral. And there was a, a very dramatic reaction, especially in areas with large um, Algerian Muslim minorities. And that has just exploded since then. I mean, some of the news from last night is is just really dramatic. The UK uh, is warning its citizens for, against traveling to France. Uh, you're kind of saying, well, monitor, be careful, monitor the media, stay away from some of these areas. You know, those are the kind of travel warnings you usually get for African countries or for Russia or something like that. Nearly 900 people were arrested last night. Uh, 2,000, nearly 2,000 cars and other vehicles have been burned since Thursday. 500 public buildings, uh, things like police stations set on fire. A total of nearly 4,000 fires started last night. You're getting the uh, police kind of you know, tens of thousands of police have been called up and, and rallied onto the streets. So this is a it's a really dramatic moment here. And the coverage in the English media to me is just bizarre. Uh, it would be like trying to cover George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement without mentioning anything about race. I mean, just talking about, like, that's not even a far right or far, you know, that's not an extreme talking point. If you want to even explain what is happening from a left-wing point of view, you need to talk about race uh, in, in in the whole Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, it's in the name. Uh, and that's what this is a lot of the mainstream media that is talking about re reports riots against police brutality and some and, and that kind of thing and sure yeah there is some sympathy on the left for what has happened because of accusations of police brutality but fundamentally this is about you know algeria was a french colony you have had over the last 70 years or more uh, uh, several generations of muslim uh, of you know black algerian muslims come to france there has been trouble integrating them and i think as in a lot of these things, there are some genuine grievances. And I think there are, you know, especially you go back into the 60s and things like that, there were real hardships for people coming in from some of these areas. And even the colonial, the French colonial administration in Algeria, um, you know, there, there's there's certainly things there you, you I would not want to sit here defending. But you've got now this movement that's really polarizing France, where you've got a lot of these people rising up. And then you've got a lot of people on the right and then, then saying, well, look, if if they weren't here... Uh, if this was a French person that was pulled over and shot, we wouldn't be seeing this reaction. Uh, and so, you know, that's just really driving this. That's what's really driving these riots here. And that's where this kind of transitions into the other story that I, that I want to talk about uh, from Germany. And this is, okay, yeah, it, it's maybe less obviously dramatic as 2,000 cars being burnt in one night. But this is also a pretty huge pretty dramatic moment where the alternative for Deutschland have won their first elected position. This upstart party in Germany that is kind of considered or has traditionally been considered completely unacceptable, where their leaders have kind of at best mimicked Nazi language. You've had a lot of these leaders kind of try to push for this revised view of German history. Some of the most infamous kind of quotes are talking about how Germany needs to move away from memorializing the Holocaust, that Holocaust memorials are a memorial of shame, that they shouldn't be putting them up. 
uh, and even quoting and, and kind of approvingly some things that Nazi politicians have said. And so everyone else has been, nope, we're not going to, we're not going to run against them. So they had uh, an, an election in um, Tur- Turinga. How's that, Joshua? Turingen. Turingen. There we go. Mm-hmm. Turingen. Uh, and um, Mr. Michels actually wrote the article up uh, on this, but it's the first time that that they've won. And you had the entire rest of the German, of German politics against them. So the main rival was a Christian Democratic Union, but everyone, the Greens, the Social Democrats, even the Left Party, uh, the Free Democrat, they were all saying, vote for, vote for this Christian Democrat. You know, vote for this guy. Pick this guy over the AFD. We want to kind of throw everything at this. We do not want the AFD to win. And the AFD still won, 52.8% of the vote. And it's a mirror image to what's happening in France, because all across Europe, you've got an increase in, in migrant violence. And then you've got these right parties, and in some case, very extreme right parties, uh, that are the only people that will talk about this. And so it's pushing people to these extreme right parties. And... I think it was on, oh, it was on the Trumpet Daily. You know, I was kind of saying, look, if you, if you live in Europe and you're not concerned about migration, I think, and, and some of these problems coming from Muslims in Europe, there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with, like, there are real genuine grievances. But because the mainstream parties won't talk about them, people are being diverted now to these parties that are almost almost neo-Nazi. I mean, the AFD in this particular region, this is where some of their most extreme politicians are and people that were almost kicked out of the party a few years ago. So uh, this whole dynamic of rising migrant violence and problems for migrants is pushing to this rise in uh, these far-right parties. And now there's a lot of people saying, well, it's only a matter of time before you start to see the Christian Democratic Union go in coalition with the alternative for Deutschland and they get fully normalized. And you start to get something that Germany said, we are never again going to have this kind of strain within our mainstream politics, uh, that that's pretty much back. Yeah, I'm I'm really thankful that you mentioned this situation in France because it is just uh incredibly volatile there right now. Watching the footage of the rioting and all of the cars on fire and just this unbridled rage. Um it has been very sobering to see it. And there definitely is, as you said, a connection between all of that rage and the rise of the extremist party there in uh Germany. So we really just see some violent undercurrents in Europe and these kinds of trends and developments. Developments, they're pushing forward some of the developments that the trumpet has been discussing for years. Yes, they do. I, this is, you know, we come back to some of these prophecies again and again. You're Revelation 17, Revelation 13, Daniel chapter 8. These are prophecies that are all about uh, what is going to happen in modern Europe. And we've got our booklet, Who and What is the Prophetic Beast, that will show you you know, exactly how these prophecies, why these chapters are talking about modern Europe, that it's talking about an empire influenced by and led by a church that rises and falls repeatedly you, know, you can look at world history it's pretty easy to figure out who these prophecies are referring to and they say that that's going to rise one more time and you look at what these prophecies are talking about and you get it it gives you a very clear picture of the character of this leadership that's coming in that it's going to be authoritarian that you have it's led by a strong man uh it's very militaristic the world looks on and says well who can even fight this power uh, Daniel chapter 11 talks about it going into conflict with the Middle East and, and uh, you know, having this war with an Islamic-led king of the South. And in this, this political shift that's going on in Europe right now, you know, you're seeing those prophecies come to life. And you're seeing this power that is uh, you know, all of those different characteristics. 
uh, a Europe led by 10 kings, not 10 presidents or 10 republics, 10 elected leaders. Uh, it's really fascinating to see some of even these different strands uh, in Bible prophecy that don't necessarily seem related, like the, the autocratic tendencies and then this conflict with the king of the south. Uh, and radical Islam. They're all working together and we're getting a very complete picture of the Europe that's prophesied in the Bible. It's coming to life right now in all of the different details. It's a wonderful uh, proof of, of of Bible prophecy. So much of those prophecies are fulfilled already. You've had these resurrections of this or this empire that that has been resurrected several times. That's already fulfilled prophecy and you can see so much of this last resurrection. It's already here. Uh, but uh, Joshua has an article up on the website, Germany Self-Inflicted Far-Right Problems, and that will, uh, I mean, that takes you through some more of the dynamics of what is happening in, in Germany in particular uh, and and shows exactly how this trend fits in with those Bible prophecies. Germany's Self-Inflicted Far-Right Problems is the name of that article. We will leave a link to that in our show notes for anyone who would like to study into those various passages that Mr. Palmer just mentioned there. Thanks very much for that, Mr. Palmer. And Josue, you normally keep an eye on Europe, but we've shuffled things around a little bit this week, and you have instead focused on Asia for at least the last couple of days. What is the big news from the East? That's right, and the biggest news, obviously, is the mutiny, the revolt in Russia that we will talk later in the program in our panel discussion. But there are also quite a few other developments that I think are very concerning, and especially if you are living in America. And those news from Asia should really be a wake-up call for all of us. For example, Cuba's defense chief met with Russia's defense chief in Moscow. Now, there's a war in Ukraine going on, but that doesn't seem to face Cuba at all and Cuba has been known for inviting US enemies and they are working together on joint military technical projects. At the same time the foreign minister of Russia and Venezuela met to discuss further joint cooperation so the Russia's goal here is obviously to weaken the US in the region of Latin America as well. Another big one I think is how the world sees China and deals with it. For example, China's economy has just been saved from being decoupled from the rest of the world. So that's a big story. After Chinese Premier, that's the second most powerful man in China, toured Europe last week, the 27 leaders of the European community agreed that they're going to be a little, little bit more soft on China in their June 28th to 29th meeting. And this is something the EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen actually asked for back in January and again in March prior to her trip to China with French President Emmanuel Macron, where they famously said that they're not going to stand with the United States on their Taiwan policy and other things. So after a three-day summit with G7 leaders in May, US President Joe Biden actually took that same message on. And this week, von der Leyen said that basically Britain, America and Europe are on the same page now. So that appears to be that Europe swayed America to be more friendly toward China again, where they have been verbally at least trying to say, like, we're going to decouple more, we're going to be more against China in the future. And Europe says, like, well, let's let's be a little bit more soft on them and let's have try to de-risk instead of decouple. And the following montage really shows how they are using the same language and how von der Leyen used it first, then followed by Biden, and then followed by von der Leyen again, so we can play that clip. I believe it is neither viable nor in Europe's interest 
to decouple from China. Our relations are not black or white, and our response cannot be either. And this is why we need to focus on de-risk, not decouple. We're not looking to decouple from China. We're looking to de-risk and diversify our relationship with China. And we also see uh, beyond Europe that there's an alignment uh, with de-risk, not decouple. So that's really interesting. President Macron repeatedly said that Europe won't follow the U.S. approach to China, and now it appears that the U.S. is someone following Europe's approach toward China. And Bible prophecy really indicates that this will be devastating for America, as we will see even a little bit in our main story for today. Yeah, some uh, notable developments there for sure, particularly with Europe's softening stance on China and with the Wagner revolt in Russia. As you said, we will discuss that in depth during our panel discussion a bit later in the show. So those are some of the significant news items from the week in Asia. And you've got another story that you view as even more important. Yeah, I think it's more important because it actually appears to be really good news for America because finally they're doing something to stop the fentanyl crisis, which is really devastating for the American people. This drug is actually killing 150 Americans a day. Drug addiction is a huge problem in America, and getting a deadly drug in there really exploits that weakness that America has. And we know that China is behind supplying the precursor ingredients for that truck. Now, the United States Justice Department indicted four Chinese chemical firms and eight Chinese nationals on June 23rd to put an end to that. So that really sounds like that's a good news for an end to that crisis. So this is, uh, you know, as you said, it's somewhat encouraging to see the United States indict these Chinese companies and individuals. It looks like a positive step in tackling something that has become, as you said, just a catastrophic problem for the United States, the leading cause of death for people under 50. Uh, so this seems like good news on the surface, but do you expect this U.S. crackdown to really make a difference? Yeah, many say and believe it's too little, too late to end this crisis really and China's goal is to really weaken the United States society and an indictment like that won't stop them they can change the company's names for example they can find other ways to get the chemical components into Mexico into the United States they can find a way around those regulations so China is really not being deterred by that they are going to be more eager to find other ways and the United States might sit back for a little bit thinking they have a victory here, but it it really is a battle that they can't win that way. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned the the name changes for these companies because the, the, the Chinese companies that are involved in this wicked campaign, they have shown themselves to be very nimble, very cunning over the years. They can easily just change their company name and suddenly they're no longer under American scrutiny. It's a brand new company. We know nothing about them. They don't have a blighted track record. Uh, they can also tweak the chemical compound of what they're selling to these Mexican cartels. And suddenly, 
that means they're not selling a banned chemical, but instead they're selling a slightly different legal chemical that does exactly the same thing. So they have uh, been able to stay kind of one step ahead of U.S. regulators with these kinds of things. And, and it all shows that this is a problem that would require far more from the Biden administration than what we're seeing if we really wanted it to be solved. Um, Josue, could you talk a little bit about the big picture of why you think this story is important? Yes, we voted in our October 2018 issue. If a foreign enemy wanted to undermine America from within, facilitating the flow of illicit drugs into the country would be an effective way to do it. The People's Republic of China has adopted just such a strategy. And that really fits in with the events that we talked before, our main story of Europe, swaying America to keep on trading with China and Europe and China, they are really working together to undermine America. And we see that in numerous Bible prophecies, and those prophecies are the most dire prophecies in the Bible. You can read about them in Deuteronomy 28, where it talks about a besiegement. Isaiah 23 talks about the nations involved, and Ezekiel 5 really talks about how horrific the consequences of that besiegement will be. And these prophecies taken together show that Europe and Asia will unite to bring down the superpower, America. It is, it is through truck trafficking, it is through trade alliances, it is through military corporations in Latin America and Cuba. All those things together are part of the same big picture. And God allows all of these events to really bring America to repentance. So that's why I think these events are so sobering and they really should make us think twice about what's going on in the world. We've got an article up on thetrumpet.com. It's called Breathing Fire on the Transatlantic Alliance. Uh, and it goes through some of those prophetic passages that Josue just mentioned there. We'll include a link to that in the show notes for today's episode. We'll also link to a big picture article by our very own Andrew Miller. It's called China's Drug War Against America. So you can find links to both of those in our show notes on SoundCloud or at thetrumpet.com. Thanks very much for bringing us up to speed on that, Josue. We'll turn our attention now to the Middle East, which Rafara Manyepa has been keeping an eye on this week. What are some of the uh, notable developments there in the Middle East, Rafaro? Yeah, there's uh, this story that the Times put out. They titled the article, Saudi Arabia Wants Thriving Israel After Years of Fractured Middle East. And it talks about how Saudi Arabia wants to normalize relations with Israel. And they've they've been uh, at odds, to say the least, for decades. But um, uh, Saudi Arabian royal family members have been saying, we want to see a thriving Israel. We want to see a thriving Palestine. But um, the actual core of this story is uh, <laughs> embedded later on in the article where it says that Riyadh has a keen interest in harnessing Israel's nuclear expertise, believed to be at the center of negotiations between the two sides. That's mm. what's at the core of this article. Um, Saudi Arabia and Iran have been at odds for a very long time, and Saudi Arabia has always wanted to counter uh, Iran's nuclear development, and Israel, uh, with its technological advancement, is a very good way to do that. And so uh, this article is really uh, about uh, getting a better nuclear program in Saudi Arabia, and then also looking out for you know uh, any sort of peace or normal relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel to be very short-lived. There's uh, another 
article that uh, came out, uh, I think it was on Tuesday. Yeah, it was on Tuesday about how uh, Israel seized uh, several millions of dollars in cryptocurrency from digital wallets used by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps Quds Force and uh, its Lebanese ally Hezbollah. Um, the financing of millions of dollars uh, in cryptocurrency was going to be used for uh, terrorism. And so this, I think, just shows uh, what Iran is really uh, putting in order to be able to finance terror against Israel. And, and that's even brought out even more in the following story that we have here, where uh, uh, Israel's intelligence agency, uh, the Mossad, uh, announced yesterday that it thwarted a Cyprus terror attack. Um, that was being funded uh, by uh, an Iranian terrorist cell. Um, so that's probably one of the one of the groups that all these millions of dollars in untraceable cryptocurrency uh, would have been funding. And um, they actually did it by kidnapping the guy who was masterminding uh, this terrorist attack, who was planning on conducting it within Iranian territory itself. Um, so those are just some of the stories that have come out this week yeah quite a lot to keep an eye on there and what would you say was the biggest story of the week from the middle east well the the big story started uh, decades ago in fact um we've written about this before at the trumpet um we have an article titled israel's rogue supreme court and uh in it brent nactigal writes about how in the last few decades Israel's supreme court has grown in power and influence uh, for the worse. Um, there's There's been a takeover of Israel's judicial system by uh, leftist activists. And uh, in April 2020, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu said that there's no democracy here in Israel, but a government of bureaucrats and jurists. Uh, and so his, his campaign, uh, his election campaign, uh, for, for earlier this year, it was built on the back of promises to rein in this rogue uh, uh, Supreme Court. And Netanyahu won. He, he won this election. His coalition was fully supported. Uh, the people saw that this uh, Supreme Court was rogue and they wanted to put a stop to it. And they supported the ideals of reforming Israel's judiciary. But then yesterday... Uh, in an interview with the Wall Street Journal, Netanyahu uh, announced that he's capitulated to pressure from the people who didn't vote for him, the people who didn't give him a mandate to uh, make these judicial reforms. He he said that uh, the government would be dropping, uh, first and foremost, the override clause that they wanted to include in the judicial reform bill. And this clause would have allowed the Knesset, Israel's parliament, essentially to overturn Supreme Court rulings. So the Supreme Court comes out with a crazy ruling, for example, the Knesset has the power, would have the power to overturn it. Secondly, the bill was also to allow for uh, the ruling coalition to appoint judges to the Supreme Court. That's also been struck down. And um, it's it's really rather disappointing seeing all this. Netanyahu said that I'm attentive to the public pulse and I need to I need to uh, you know, do what I think is going to pass. But he was elected on on this idea of judicial reform. And just because there's a very vocal uh, minority that didn't vote for him and, 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 you know, weren't successful, he's capitulated to that, which is honestly really disappointing. And 
a lot of uh, the people that he's in a coalition with are disappointed with that as well. One of the coalition partners was saying that this is a victory for violence and instability. You know, the, the Supreme Court really has uh, taken a lot of power to itself. And Netanyahu even said that he's not sure what a new version of this coalition is going to look like. So well, what happened yesterday represents a real uh, capitulation uh, on, on the side of uh, law and order in Israel. Yeah, I think you can really see why there's a lot of disappointment among his allies over this decision. He's not using the mandate, you know, that the voters originally gave to him. What can you tell us about the bigger picture here in terms of uh, the power of law in Israel and, you know, the implications that has not just for Israel, but even some of its brother nations? Yeah, that uh, that's exactly what's at the core of this article. Um, and uh, our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, uh, got to the heart of this in a, an article he wrote late last year. It's titled, Britain's and Judah's Governments Fall, America Next. And he explains that um, the Bible passage found in Hosea 5 gives critical understanding to what's going on in Israel and how it's mirroring a lot of what's been happening uh, in America and, and in Britain as well. And, and our American audience will be very familiar with, um, you know, how broken a lot of the judgment in America is, unelected bureaucrats, these unrestrained judges just taking the law into their own hands and really promoting lawlessness. And Mr. Flurry points to Hosea 5, verse 5, which shows that um, America, Britain, and the Jewish nation of Israel today will all be falling together, and that they're all affected by similar problems, similar problems of lawlessness. And Mr. Flurry says that all three of these nations are deeply divided along ideological lines, and this chasm is at the heart of political upheaval in these three countries. He goes on to say that these three countries are going to fall together. Uh, God does say that uh, in all this, there will be a, a time of reprieve. Um, but the politics that we're seeing play out in, in, in Britain, in Israel, and in the United States um, are showing how close we are to these prophecies being fulfilled of Israel, uh, America, and Britain all facing these same problems. And as Hosea 5 verse 5 says, all of them are going to fall together. The name of those two articles that Rafaro just mentioned there are Israel's Rogue Supreme Court and Britain's and Judah's Governments Fall, America Next. So please visit thetrumpet.com to check those out. And thanks very much for that, Mr. Monyepo. We will turn our attention now to the U.S. and Britain, which Andrew Miller keeps a vigilant eye on. Andrew, what were the big developments in the Anglo world this week? Yeah, a mortgage catastrophe may be brewing in Britain as rising interest rates push millions towards insolvency. The U.S. government is actually facing a similar problem as the interest payments on its $32 trillion national debt are set to surpass $663 billion this year. That's 80% of U.S. defense spending. And the U.S. Supreme Court has stirred up quite a controversy in the United States by rejecting affirmative action and a ruling on university admissions. Yeah, some some notable developments there for sure. And you've got another story, I understand, that uh, you view as even more important. Uh, well, this is going to be the one you're not going to hear about as much in the mainstream uh, news, but is a root cause of uh, 
basically all the other, <laughs> most of the other problems that you're having in America, at least, which is the stolen election. On a episode of Tucker on Twitter this week, Tucker Carlson made a, a good point where he noticed that so many of the decisions the Biden administration is making are very unpopular, but they're still pushing through brazenly with some of these decisions because it just seems like they have absolute confidence that there's no way they could lose the next election. Uh, and, and Tucker suggested that they that, that confidence may be rooted in the fact that they control the electronic voting machines. Uh, and there's actually um, a pretty big court decision that didn't happen this week, but last week that reveals that that is, um, at least in the state of Georgia, that may well be who may well be true. In Georgia, um, a judge unsealed uh, a report by a computer scientist from uh, Michigan State University. Uh, his name's Alex uh, Halderman. And this report uh, isn't a smoking gun that the election was stolen in Georgia, uh, but it is a very detailed technical analysis of why the Dominion voting machines used in Georgia are in desperate need of a software update. Uh, and they've had actually 20 other uh, pretty well-known computer scientists come out and support him and saying, no, the machines, the Dominion voting machines in Georgia are very vulnerable to hacking. They've been vulnerable for the past two elections. Uh, that would be the 2022 midterms and the 2020 presidential election uh, and desperately need an update before you can have a safe and secure election in 2024. Yet Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, is, uh, is very defensive <laughs> over allegations that the election was stolen uh, in 2020. He doesn't want to do anything to give his critics any ammunition. And so he's penned a letter saying that this report's completely overblown. Uh, it would be too expensive and too time-consuming to do the necessary software updates. And so he does not plan on changing the software in the Dominion voting machines in Georgia at all before the 2024 election, which means that whatever issues happened in 2020 and 2022 are set to happen again in 2024. Uh, the reports have been unsealed. The appropriate state officials have been made aware of the problem. Uh, and they've defiantly come out and said that they're not going to change a thing. Wow. So this is uh, just a very dire sounding report for those who are concerned about election integrity. And yet the authorities in Georgia are saying that they don't plan to update the software until after the 2024 election. Um, what do you think this tells us about what we should expect for the results of that next presidential election? We've actually got a short clip here. Um titled will georgia's voting systems be secure from fox news that will uh will play now to just to get uh some other opinions <laughs> on uh some other concurring opinions on what this means for georgia and then we'll we'll go in through the prophetic significance of it critics are calling out the state's plan to wait until after the 2024 presidential election to install a software update on voting equipment but election leaders say it's just not feasible 
Fox 5's Kim Luffler is at the live desk for us tonight. So, Kim, what's the reason? Well, they say it all comes down to security. This comes after a judge unsealed two reports on both sides of the issue. One report by a University of, Mich of Michigan professor finds the state's Dominion voting system has critical vulnerabilities. Another by a corporation analyzing the security of elections found the machines secure. So there's you just heard in that clip right there, and that's from Fox News. And Fox News is very famous <laughs> for not supporting the uh, idea that the 2020 election was stolen. Uh, they've paid Dominion almost $800 uh, million dollars, uh, for claiming that previously. But even this clip says that well, like whether or not it was stolen in the past, if you do not do these software updates, uh, there's going to be a tremendous amount of controversy over whether the results were significant in the future. Uh, and then you've got other people who have been even more, um, uh, even more outspoken, such as my pillow CEO Mike Lindell, who are going before. I said it's not just about the software update, but it said you actually have to get rid of the electronic voting machines. Period. Uh, Donald Trump is actually running on that campaign. That campaign as well. You have to get rid of electronic paper machines. Period. Go back to paper balloting to make sure that there is a secure election. And uh, we'll put America under attack by our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, in the show notes that has uh, an entire chapter uh, going through 2 Kings 14.28, talking about uh, an end-time Jeroboam figure uh, having to war to recover something that was stolen. And he'll go through there with, uh, with more evidence than we presented today on how the, the 2020 election was— um, was stolen through a variety of means, uh, and the uh, the vulnerabilities in the electronic voting systems would be, um, along with mail-in ballots, one of the primary means that election was stolen. Uh, but that verse there in verse 28 talking about warring means it's not just going to be a matter of um, a judge unsealing <laughs> a report about election vulnerabilities and Brad Raffensperger coming back and saying, oh, wow, sorry, my bad. Uh, I guess we'll, uh, we'll update that and make sure everything's uh, taken care of next time. There's going to be some element of like warring or fighting. And, uh, and we don't know exactly if that means <laughs> like military warring to uninstall a corrupt regime, or if it, this is more like intense legal warfare to <laughs> to force some of these corrupt secretaries of states like Brad Raffensperger to do like the uh, <laughs> the computer scientists have determined needs to be done and make sure that uh, you either go to paper balloting or at least get some software that's not so riddled with bugs that um, uh, anyone with any sort of computer training can can come in and switch a few votes, especially in Georgia. Biden only won that state by just barely over 11,000 votes. And so uh, that's a very small percentage of the people who voted by machine in Georgia. It would not take much hacking at all to completely flip an election in a swing state like that. And that prophecy definitely indicates some, uh, some pretty intense legal fireworks uh, in order to get things back to a point where Americans can have any faith at all in the uh, in the system in the numbers coming out of these machines. 
That article, once again, is called Ready for War by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. So if you'd like more details about his forecast of America's political situation, you can check that out at thetrumpet.com and also his book, America Under Attack, which Andrew just mentioned there. Well, thanks very much for that, Andrew. We'll take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll talk about mutiny in Russia and what the implications are for Vladimir Putin and beyond. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour on KPCG 101.3. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and I'm joined today by Andrew Miller, Mr. Richard Palmer, Rufaro Manyapa, and Josue Michels. And for our final segment of the show, we will discuss the mutiny that occurred last week in Russia. To bring us up to speed on this, we'll go once again to Rufaro Manyapa. Yeah, this was incredible to witness, uh, <laughs> at least, you know, through a computer screen. But it all started on Friday. Uh, uh, the, the head of this mercenary group, uh, the Wagner group, his name is Yevgeny Prigozhin. He came out on Friday and he said that the Russian army has killed 50 of my men uh, in an airstrike at a military training camp in uh, Bakhmut, uh, a Ukrainian city that, that Russia had seized. And then he went on to say that Vladimir Putin's been lying uh, about the reasons for the war on Ukraine, that uh, so many more people, three, four times more uh, Russian uh, uh, soldiers have died than what the, the government's claiming. And so because of all this, we're marching to Moscow. And they started by, by 2 a.m. Uh, that Saturday morning, they'd crossed the border uh, from Ukraine. They'd gotten into Russia. Uh, Saturday morning, um, they, they, they're uh, about uh, 200 miles away. Um, and then they, they started uh, claiming uh, military sites in Rostov, where Ru Russia was launching its attack uh, into Ukraine. They captured uh, uh, vital sites in that city. They dealt serious blows to the Russian Air Force. They uh, shot down seven Russian military aircraft. They killed uh, 13 Russian airmen uh, over over this the course of time. And then 125 miles away from Moscow, Prigozhin gives the order uh, for his men to stand down. And uh, they negotiate a peace deal through Belarusian president Alexander Lukashenko. Uh, Prigozhin gets exiled to Belarus and Putin remains in power. And just like that, this massive mutiny ends less than 24 hours after it began. Yeah, this was just a major development. I mean, watching this as it unfolded, as you said, it, it just felt really surreal. It felt like major historic events were underway, and many thought that we were really witnessing a revolution. But of course, as Rafaro just said there, the mutiny was short-lived. Prigozhin stopped about 125 miles from Moscow, and he issued the order to stand down. I've read all kinds of reasons for why he seems to have aborted the mission. Um, there are reports that KGB operatives, or FSB as we now say, had Prigozhin's family members at gunpoint, and that that caused him to stand down. There were also reports that Prigozhin got what he wanted, that Vladimir Putin agreed to fire Sergei Shoiga and uh, Valery Gerasimov, the heads, kind of the heads of the Russian military who Prigozhin hated, and so that prompted him to call it off. I've also seen reports that Prigozhin thought 
originally that he had more support in the upper rungs of the Russian military and government than he actually did. Um, and then in the moment of truth, those who had previously said they were behind him kind of switched sides and left him isolated. So who knows, you know, there, there, there could be several of those kinds of factors that contributed to the decision to call the coup off. But in either case, it ended very quickly. Uh, actually, before we move on here, would anyone else want to jump in with speculation about why Prigozhin called it off or, or about any other aspect of the story? It's hard to make sense of. I think, like, to me, it, it, it's like Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon, getting halfway to Rome. You know, he kind of giving this famous speech about the die has been cast or whatever, and then just turning around <laughs> and saying, actually, I'm going home now. Yeah. Like, it just, it, it feels bizarre to me. I don't know how, it feels like you cross the point of no return and then try to turn around and go back. And I think, it feels like the only explanation for that is something we're not seeing here, both in terms of, um, you know, some something that made him stand down, but then also, why does he think he's not going to be pushed out of a window? I mean, he hasn't been pushed out of a window yet. Right. Um, I know it, it. It really. What was it? You know, there's all of this like Russia is a riddle wrapped in wrapped in an enigma, mystery wrapped in an enigma, or it's like t watching two bulldogs fight under a carpet. It's always been like this. Watching, and there's a lot of like, uh, it, it, yeah, it feels right out of something like out of the Cold War, I guess, and. Hopefully we'll find new bits of information that, that make sense of it. Uh, I think it's one of those, this is one of, it really illustrates to me, you know, the power and the value of Bible prophecy, because, you know, we have a lot of things that are prophesied concretely and specifically in the Bible, but it does, the Bible doesn't cover every twist and turn and everything that's going to happen. And, you know, we can get up here and we can talk with a whole lot of confidence when we, when the Bible tells us what's happening next. And when it doesn't, we're all at sea. And I think that's in terms of why he turned around. I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. That's the, uh, the Churchill quote, a mystery wrapped inside an, enig an enigma inside of a puzzle, something to that effect. But it, it really is just uh, very murky, very obscure. Um, I would like to turn to Josue now, though, for some input on what this tells us about Putin in particular and about Russia and perhaps about uh, some of Russia's allies as well. Yes, that fits in very well with what we have been talking about, because what's most interesting from my point of view is how Putin is going to respond to all of this. And in a way, it could help him a little bit, because it did show him who is loyal to him and who is not loyal to him. Now, he still has to figure out how to deal with those things and not to bring another revolt on him. Or if someone, some people said it might have been staged, and that could have even exposed some of that too I mean, if he had planned that but it really looks like that Putin has a chance now to purge some of those that are disloyal and yesterday the British Financial Times reported that a top Russian army general Sergei Sorovkin also called General Armageddon which sounds even more frightening has been detained so it sounds like that he's starting to purge and other people have said that they are expecting a Soviet-style purge. And that's also what we're expecting at the trumpet, that Vladimir Putin will be coming more and more like Joseph Stalin. So something like that, like a revolt, a mutiny, can really push him out of fear or others things to really crack down hard on those around him. I was reminded of Adolf Hitler, who survived quite a few assassination attempts and revolts. And... For him, it was like, well, 
I'm called by God to do this so they can't kill me and fueled into his messiah complex any time that something like that failed. So Putin may have not asked much of a messiah complex, I'm not sure, but fear could have a similar motivation where he's saying like, well, I got to do everything to put down rebellion. That may cause him to fire some good generals because they are not as loyal as he th thinks they should be. But at the same time, it could strengthen his government line down where he's saying, okay, everyone has to follow my commands no matter what. It may even cause him to crack down more on Ukraine, saying we need a success abroad to unify the base at home. It's also interesting to see how China responded. And I have an article from Politico here. China praises Putin's leadership, calls for stability in Russia, which sounds good. But Politico also wrote Beijing sat silently through the attempted revolt on Saturday and issued a statement only after the dust had settled. So that gives a message to Putin that shows like, okay, China's watching. If you don't bring success, we might switch whoever will be the next leader. So their support to Putin doesn't seem strong if he faces revolts. But at the same time, if he's successful, we know that China is behind him. So that is another motivation for Putin to come on strong on rebellions, come on strong on Ukraine. I think that's a really good point. Um that Joshua is making just about how Putin's going to respond to this. I mean, this is something that I thought of watching it. Like, coups and rebellions are ridiculously common in Russian history. You know, like, one Russian leader changed the number of fingers that you hold up while doing the cross, uh, and it triggered a rebellion. Uh, so you know, there's, a, there's a lot of these going on, and it like, a lot of Russian leaders become m much more brutal after their rebellion. I mean, I think of something like Pukachev's re uh, revolt, rebellion. Uh, this was under Catherine the Great. Catherine the Great was the European ideal of an enlightened monarch. You know, like she's carrying on a correspondence with Voltaire in France, and she is going to bring Russia into a much more liberal, uh, free era, is the way people thought. And then she has this big Cossack rebellion and, and and even the remnants of people that thought you should do a cross with a different number of fingers and this kind of thing. Uh, and she clamps down brutally and she even kind of backtracks on social reforms or, or, or cracks down on some of these, like basically making slavery tougher and harsher in Russia. Uh, and it's, it's, it's very brutal. So, you know, how do, if Putin sees these kind of things, you know, does he respond with something similar? Uh, I mean, that's, that certainly is the trend throughout Russian history. And is, if you look at, uh, you know, I, I think Mr. Miller's going to talk about the prophecy in, in, in just a minute, but there's a lot of very specific, you know, we're guided by Bible prophecy here. And there's some specific prophecies about um, you know, Vladimir Putin being this prophesied individual in the Bible. And based on those prophecies, Mr. Flory's made a few specific comments that he's going to try and re-kind of constitute the Soviet Union and go in and conquer other countries. And we saw that fulfilled in Ukraine, but that also he's going to be incredibly brutal and incredibly re re repressive. You see that already. I mean, you see that with the horrific news that we've had out of Ukraine, like castrating prisoners of war. I mean, this is, this is despicable. Uh, and you know, is this going to push him even more in that direction and perhaps even more on his own on his own people. Uh, I think, Jeremiah, you had an article on that about a year ago, like shortly after the the Ukrainian invasion about how the Russian people could well be a victim of this war as it makes Putin much more extreme. And I think we could see that with the with the coup. 
Yeah, there's there's quite a lot to uh, keep an eye on here. This this really could, as you said, usher in a dark new era for Putin. Um, so it's it's tough to make sense of all this. As you said, it's like the dogs fighting under the blanket. But uh, Andrew, many analysts are saying that this was it was too heavy a blow for Putin to withstand in the long term. You know, he may have bought himself some time, but this rebellion and the fact that it was allowed to get as close to Moscow as it did. And the fact that the ringleader, Prigozhin, was not even arrested, you know, right now he's he's free, he's living. They say that this means Putin is weak and that he was so severely weakened by this that he won't be able to cling to the, you know, the levers of power. Could you talk a little bit about that and about uh, the Trumpet's stance on that? Yeah, there's, I mean, definitely a lot of factors at play here and uh we'll see in the weeks going forward whether this was a some sort of four-dimensional chess move by putin or whether he is actually weaker than we thought he was or stronger than we thought he was uh but this is one of those issues where bible prophecy does give us uh clarity that other news outlets aren't going to provide and our main uh prophecy that our editor-in-chief mr gerald flurry focuses on in his book the prophesied prince of Russia, which you can uh, read in the show notes or uh, call in and request for free, uh, focuses on Ezekiel 38, uh, particularly verses 1 through 2, talk about uh, a prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal who rules in the land of Magog. And so that's interesting because that's, that's four different ethnic groups there, Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, Magog. And then there's companion scriptures to that one, like in Jeremiah 51, verses 27 through 28, that talk about Ararat, Mini, Ashkenaz, the Medes. And so you've got at least eight, <laughs> at least eight different ethnic groups you can find here to show that this leader is not just the leader of uh, one nation or, or even a big nation, but actually a, a, like a leader of a multi-ethnic confederacy. And if you look at any good Bible map and look up, well, where where did the Medes live, and where was Ashkenaz, and where was Mini, and where was Ararat, and where's Magog, and and Meshach, and Tubal, and and Rosh, and all those countries are either in the Caucasus or were either in the Caucasus or on the north shore of the Black Sea, in areas that are have now were incorporated into the Soviet Union, and so the pro- the prophecy can only be fulfilled by someone who's ruling over many different nations in the general area of the Soviet Union. So you're looking for you're looking for like the successor state to the Soviet Union, this prince of Russia as the book says. And um so there's really only one nation on earth that can fill can fulfill those prophecies and there's only one leader over that that nation is Russia is the nation and it's currently a dictatorship and so we're looking for the the dictator of Russia the prince of Rosh Vladimir Putin uh not to be ousted in a coup but to actually um end up coming out of this conflict with power over even more peoples expanding down into some of these areas like Georgia and eastern Ukraine and cementing his control over Belarus and so the the trumpet stance on this is we're definitely uh, informed by Bible prophecy to look for for Putin to continue to expand his uh, his rule over what he has and not um, and not looking for him to be uh, to be ousted in a, a temporary setback like the one he had with this Wagner rebellion. 
The name of that booklet, once again, is The Prophesied Prince of Russia. It goes through the Bible passages that Andrew just mentioned there and just elucidates the big picture significance of Putin's rule. We will leave a link to that in the show notes so that you can order your free copy of that booklet. You'll also find links there to all of the articles and the other pieces of literature that were referenced on the show today. Well, we are now coming to the end of Trumpet Hour. Please email any questions or comments you may have about today's episode to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks very much to our panel, Andrew Miller, Mr. Richard Palmer, Rafaro Manyepa, and Josue Michels. Many thanks also to Parker Campbell and Jesse Hester for taking care of the audio work for the program. And we thank you listeners once again for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. <laughs>